The following message is from the 2012 IBCD Summer Institute, Changed by Grace. Well, we'll begin very shortly. One thing I wanted to repeat and make very clear is sometimes when I'm saying things, I'm meaning a certain uh, group of people, and you, it might be misunderstood as I'm talking about somebody else. You know, For example, I'm talking about uh, homosexual issues, I may not be referring at all to someone who's a born-again Christian and, and struggles with this. So if you could try to dis- discern that. Um, to me, a born-again Christian struggling with this is just like, it's just like me, a born-again Christian struggling with, with sin. So I, I just don't want to um, not be clear and be misrepresenting people. Like you'll, you'll, you'll talk to people and they'll say, I have some same-sex attraction, but I'm not a homosexual, and I, I, I agree with that, you know. Okay, so we'll, a little after eight, so we'll begin. Um, thank you for being here, and welcome to this workshop, which is coming out of Homosexuality Part 2. And as I mentioned in the first session, uh, the subtitle, Clarity and Compassion for the Struggler, and what I mean is Biblical Clarity and Biblical compassion for people struggling in this way. So let's uh, begin with prayer. Father in heaven, you want us to be uh, people who understand the times, and this is certainly a key issue of our day. Um, Help at least part of our life to be giving out compassion in this area and giving out truth, whether it's with an individual or some other, some other uh, way that we can do that in the culture. Um, we want to have Christ-like compassion that leads people to the truth of Christ. And may that truth set people free, that they would be free from the bondage of sin, uh, they would become worshipers, or if they have this struggle, they could become more worshipful and more free. And uh, Holy Spirit, pray that I would be enabled to teach and that you would be the teacher of your people. And we pray through Christ. Amen. The workshop outline is we're going to give biblical answers about homosexuality, and then we're going to apply those answers in counseling. And then we're going to uh, conclude with a story of a real individual. Uh, earlier in the day, part one, for those of you who weren't here, we gave the unbiblical answers or the world's answers and critiqued that. And in counseling, you may be facing both. You might have to correct error and then also give truth. So we'll start with biblical answers. And, and before I start on this, what I did earlier in part one and what we're doing here, it isn't a systematic thing. You go through all these steps with every person. There's some things that will be needed, some things that won't be needed. Um, you're interacting with the person and what they need to know at the time. Um, it would be nice over the course of time in counseling and then discipling with the person over a longer period that they could get all this information. I, I think the, the more they have of it, the more free that they're going to be set. So, first, in the idea of biblical answers, how do we know right and wrong? And the way we know right and wrong is um, solely from God. Um, We have uh, a God-given conscience. 
There's God's created design and God's word. Regarding the conscience, Paul said in Romans 2, For when Gentiles are unbelievers who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. So when you're dealing with people, deep down inside, all people know homosexuality is wrong. And he goes on to say, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So um, they can uh, ignore their conscience. They can deny what they know through the conscience. They can allow their conscience to get hardened. But they will be judged even for violating their conscience. There was a guy named uh, Mike that I met. He was at a conference um, that was actually part of a Congressional Congress um, caucus. He was an, a homosexual activist that was supporting this Congressional caucus. Uh, by the way, there's maybe 90 people in our Congress that are in a homosexual caucus, which is the purpose of the caucus is to promote um, pro-homosexual laws. Um, but I was having a conversation uh, with Mike, and he was describing to me that he was uh, used to be afraid of his homosexuality. Inside, he knew he, he he kind of feared it. He knew it was wrong, and then he and he also feared people and how they treated him regarding it. And he made this statement to me. He said, "I used to be fearful on the inside about being gay, as well as about those who want to kill me because I'm gay, but the fear inside of me." has gone away. And so Mike, because of the choices he's making, his priorities have flipped around. He should be um, more afraid of, you know, have a fear of God, more afraid of his sin than about someone even killing him. Jesus said in Matthew 10, um, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will warn you who to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So his fear of God was going away as his conscience was was hardening. So the next way we know uh, right and wrong is through created design. Um, There's ways things function, and we can look at it and we know what's right and what's wrong. So just by observing the human anatomy, we know um, that homosexuality is wrong. And then when we kind of drill down more, when we, when we see that it takes a male and female to produce a baby, we realize that's, that's the way things were designed. And then when we realize that a male-male relationship results in injury and illness, we see it's not functioning according to created design. And then as we go down even smaller to the, to the de- design details of our, our sexual uh, um, bodies and the reproductive design details, their heterosexual design. Um, the female sexual area is lined with tough cells that protects against abrasion and infection. The rectum is designed to absorb liquids and does not protect well against abrasion or infection. So, therefore, when you have this male-male situation, you have 50 times the rate of the transfer of infections. So, creative design tells us it's wrong. It's obvious. 
when I talked to Mike about um, his conscience, about the Bible, um, you know, regarding his conscience, it, it didn't bother him at all. His homosexuality, he, he embraced it. When I talked to him about the Bible, you know, he just he pointed to it before I even said anything. He said that is offensive, and he wouldn't listen to that. Um, although, interestingly, they'll quote part of it, and you know, but they'll say it's offensive and it's not the authority of their life. But when I went to create a design and talked to him about two males standing there facing each other, and I said, Mike, what, what, what do you, you have to say that that's obviously not intended? And he said, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. So that was the thing that he realized. He still hadn't, um, couldn't suppress that truth. And then the third way to know right and wrong, um, which is all right and wrong, completely um, solely what God lays out as right and wrong, is God's word. So God's word completes the knowledge of right and wrong I've just been describing. The knowledge in your conscience, the knowledge of created design, it completes it. So when you know in your conscience and you know looking at created design something's wrong, the Bible completes it by saying it's not just wrong, it's sin. Right? It makes it more full. So the wrong that they're aware of in the Bible becomes idolatry. It becomes a violation of the seventh commandment. Um, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It's an abomination. So you're violating God's moral law. Um, and it's described as degrading passions, unnatural, and indecent acts. So it goes from just being wrong to much more clearly um, the type of wrong it is. And the sense of judgment you can have in your conscience or the sense of um, judgment when you're doing something against created design becomes specific uh, judgment and there should be specific fear from the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. It becomes very specific. And... Um, this nor effeminate nor homosexuals is the the male playing the female role in the relationship and the male playing the dominant um, male role. So this is a, the an, the question everybody wants to the answer to. What is the cause of homosexuality? The cause is sin. We talked in the first workshop. There's many many things that provoke someone to um, act out in this sin. Um, there's even many things sinfully done against them. They're, they're truly victims in some ways, but that is just a provocation. It's not the cause. The cause of homosexuality is sin. And the, the flow from top to bottom here is we're all born guilty. We're all born with a polluted nature from original sin. There's the seeds of every sin in every one of us. Um, and, and that includes people have unnatural homosexual desire. And that leads to... Um, the situation where in Romans 1 it talks about we actively suppress the truth of God. It begins with unbelief. And um, instead of believing the truth of God, we believe the lie of the idol. And this all builds to where we begin to seek our ultimate satisfaction in something created, in this case a person of the same sex, rather than seeking our ultimate satisfaction in God. And once we've suppressed that truth and we've bought into the lie and we think that our satisfaction is going to come from that lie, you can bet we're going to act out on it. Um, yes? I, I don't know if I misunderstood you or if I heard you correctly. Um, where it says seeds of every sin and unnatural homosexual desire. 
did you did you say that seeds of every sin is in every person, and so every person has homosexual desires? Is that no, you? but the potential's there. The potential. The potential's there. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So once once we get to this idolatry, um, that's what we think is going to give us the greatest satisfaction. We're going to do it. So the direct cause, as we narrow down, is same-sex idolatry. In Romans 1, um, the Apostle Paul says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, that's the idolatry, who is blessed forever, amen. Um, And when Paul says, who is blessed forever, amen, he's trying to contrast they're seeking satisfaction in something very inferior. You know, it, it should be uh, the Lord. So for this reason, idolatry, God gave them over to, and it starts describing homosexuality. So they're worshiping the wrong thing, and God will give you over to that to learn that that is the wrong thing. The penalty for same-sex idolatry is homosexuality itself. Um, in Romans 1 it says, God gave them over to homosexuality, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error, which was the idolatry. So keep in mind, what we're talking here is wrong worship. We were created to worship the Creator. And we heard in the worship uh, singing earlier, what is the ultimate thing God's trying to do with us? He's trying to uh, have worshipers born, people become worshipers, and people become more worshipful and ultimately we're, we're going to worship him forever. So this is what people desire, so God lets them have their desires. He lets them act out on what they want, what they desire. It's kind of like a child who um, you're trying to train and they, they want to go in a rebellious route. And so because you love them, you let them go so that they'll experience that and then they'll see that that desire is... Um, wrong worship, um, that it's just just very <laughs> destructive. So the penalty for idolatry, um, it's not just homosexuality, it's a penalty for idolatry, wrong worship. And so in Romans 1, they weren't just given over to homosexuality, God gave them over to sexual immorality, God gave them over to homosexuality, and God gave them over to all kinds of sin. People ask a lot, is there a predisposition to it? And yes, there is a predisposition in some people. Um, there, there can be that unnatural, um, ungodly, homosexual desire in people. But there's differing sinful predispositions in all of us. We all have these things. We have a desire for revenge or too much food, for drunkenness, for approval of man. The list just goes on and on and on. And we have... We all have multiples of these kinds of things in us. Um, in James 1, 14, he says, But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And the idea of that is there's a peculiar lust in each person that's different. Um, these sinful desires stem from the polluted nature, or original sin. Uh, King David in Psalm 51, 5 um, when he was confessing his sin, when he was confronted for adultery, sexual sin, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in, and in sin my mother conceived me. He got it. 
he, he got that um, not only was his behavior sinful, he had sinful desires, and he's been this way. That's his nature. Um, J.I. Packer, in his book, Concise Theology, uh, a quote is, Sinfulness marks everyone from birth, and there is in the form of a motivationally twisted heart, and, I'm sorry, sinfulness marks everyone from birth and is there in the form of a motivationally twisted heart prior to any actual sins. And I'm going to get into this more, but the reason I'm stressing this so much is because I believe people can get freer of just not repenting of the behavior, but be, be, repent of our ungodliness. And it's not the homosexual, it's, it's all of us. It's, it's the behavior, the desire, and all the way back to I, I, I'm born unlike God, ungodly. But thanks be to God that um, we have the last Adam who was perfectly righteous and he can be our head when we repent of who we are, ungodliness, and we put our faith in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a, a word concupiscence which is actually in the King James Bible. So it's a word that's been around a long time, but what it means is that by nature, we all have a strong, sinful, and unnatural desire for things. Um, in Romans 7, 8, a modern translation would say, we have coveting or lust of every kind. And the same, the same verse translated in the King James, all manner of concupiscence. So, you know, these idols you've heard talking about and these wrong desires, this is, this is in all of us. It's, it's um, how desperately sick... Um, Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are. And then sexual sin is the prime manifestation of all this. Galatians 5.19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality or porneia, sexual sin, impurity, sensuality. Um, the Bible describes our heart in three ways. It's deceitful, it's sick, and it's unknowable. And that's from birth. Um, no one should trust or be led by innate desires. The desires you're born with, the wrong thing to do is follow those. Um, Proverbs 14.12, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 28.26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. James 1.15, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. The harm in our life is because of the sin in our life. The sin in our life is because of these wrong desires in us. So I made this chart up. It shows the progression of sinful desire. Uh, it works from left to right, but you can trace back what's going on in all of us from right to left. So what happens is we're all born with latent sinful desire in that nature. We're born guilty and we're born polluted. And then we be, start to become conscious of that desire um, here. And that desire is to be starved and not fed. Um, we can stay here if we starve it. If we feed it, um, we feed the sinful desire, it'll, become, it'll go from an idol to a ruling idol. And then whatever is ruling idol in our heart, that's where we're going to start sinning. We're going to act out in the behavior. 
So there's a link of desire all the way through here. If someone's acting out in sinful desire, you can trace it back to they have a ruling idol in their life um, because they fed it. It was there before, and it's been there since the beginning. So all of us in this room, we're born ungodly. We have ungodly desire. It turns into ungodly worship, and anything we worship, we're going we're gonna to behave that way. And, and you don't see this much in talking about homosexuality. And I, I, do, I, I purposely did this with what's usually talked about and this side of it because there is more freedom for people to, if there's more repentance. So sinful desire is not to be minimized. So when people say, yeah, I shouldn't do it, but um, I didn't choose this, I wouldn't word it like that if I was in with my desire. The way I would word it is when I think about simple desire, I would say, it just reminds me that we're just, all of us, we're just a fallen people. You know, this is the struggle of all of us to, to have to deal with this. That's why we long for heaven, that um, this tension is going to be gone. Um, so I, I would like people that struggle with this and, and are um, Christians to be able to say, um, you know, not downplay the sin, but say, yeah, we're all... A fallen people. John Owen in The Mortification of Sin said, quote, If you're particularly inclined to any particular sinful action, it is but the breaking out of the original lust in your nature, and this should humble you. And he's not writing about homosexuality here. He's writing, he's writing about um, all of us. We're more God, we, as we grow in Christ-likeness, we should... As we grow in awareness of Scripture, we should be growing in awareness of we're more sinful than we than we thought. Okay, so I put up here the provocation of Jesus. Jesus was provoked to sin more than any of us. No comparison. Um, born into poverty, boys murdered while they were trying to find him. Mother mocked for her morals. Father not in his adult story. He was a refugee in Egypt. He lived in backwards Nazareth. Um, he lived under primitive and dangerous conditions. He was acquainted with hunger. The country he lived in was occupied by Roman foreigners, um, a Roman army. His cousin and friend was beheaded. He was uh, dishonored by his hometown. There's no courtship or marriage, no handsome appearance, no home, no housing at times. His temptation was Satan's focus his entire life. Talk about provocation. Um, and not, not a demon, Satan. Um, hated by religious leaders, sought to be murdered, abandoned by his closest friends, betrayed by his disciple, mocked and slandered. There was two trials with false witnesses against him. He was scourged and crucified on a cross. And mostly, most importantly, he endured mankind's sin and the wrath of God for it. Um, he was provoked. Jesus was provoked by men, Satan, and circumstances, but he did not sin. Provocation does not cause sin. A polluted nature and idolatry causes sin. Um, switching topics, but still giving biblical answers. Um, when you're counseling people who are in the stages of their kind of arguing with you and they want to um, defend it, um, you can go to passages about homosexuality, but, but the big picture is God's design for marriage. That's the unassailable teaching of Scripture that, they, that no, these scholar activists that we talked about earlier, they, they can't um, come against that Scripture talks, teaches heterosexual marriage. The Bible from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, teaches heterosexual marriage. In Genesis, uh, it talks about a man and a woman. For this reason, a man 
shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 224. In Revelation, the bridegroom and the bride, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come to his bride, or literally wife, has made herself ready. Verse 19.7. And everything in between is heterosexual marriage. Robert Gagnon, in his book on uh, an exposition of Scripture regarding homosexuality, he says, quote, Every discussion in the New Testament about marriage or sexual unions always and only seeks to regulate heterosexual unions because there's no conception of a proper homosexual union. There was no need to talk about fidelity and loving concern in same-sex unions because it was universally understood that homosexual unions were abominable. The fifth commandment stipulates honor your father and mother. The tenth commandment requires that you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. These only make sense where heterosexual couplings alone are sanctioned. Um, Heterosexual marriage is a creation ordinance. Um, God created marriage and God called the marriage that he created very good. Genesis 1.31 Heterosexual marriage was from from the beginning of mankind. Therefore, it remains in effect until God himself changes it. Um, That creation ordinance is the principle that when you read the rest of scripture, you have to read it through that lens um, um, of what God intended. And when you do that, the stark contrast just becomes very clear about what's right and wrong with um, relationships. Okay, so God has commanded this, but there's a reason behind the command. There's the why. Why the command? And the reason is to protect marriage. And um, that's because God has designed the husband-wife relationship to depict um, his, the relationship between God and his people. Um, God's plan of salvation is in Christ and the church, and the husband and the wife represent Christ and the church. When you look at a marriage, you're supposed to see the plan of salvation. Um, God didn't make marriage primarily for marriage. He made it, it, he made it primarily as a picture of something much greater. Marriage can, uh, between a man and a woman can, can be a picture of the oneness we see in a man and a woman, but also the distinction in a marriage between a man and a woman. Um, and then the difference with a man and a woman is supposed to show there's a distinction um, in God and his people. There's a creator and there's a creation. And if you have two of the same, it starts blurring that there's a difference. This is the most important part of it right here. That God's, who God is, who his people are, and what's the plan of salvation. Um, further, the why behind the command to protect marriage is for the sustainability and stability of society. Procreation within marriage um, is needed to sustain humanity. Um, also, to create more worshipers. Um, sex without control ruins people's lives. All societies whose aband- who have abandoned God's design for marriage have not survived. And then this family unit, father, mother, child, is the foundation of education, including role models and the welfare of, of the children. Robert Gagnon, again, in his book, um, says, quote, There's not a single hero of the faith that engages in homosexual conduct. No patriarch, no matriarch, no prophet, 
no priest, no king, certainly not David, because we're talking about David's sin that the whole world knows is, is with women. No apostle, no disciple. The Song of Solomon is devoted to singing the praises of committed heterosexual love. In addition, every proverb or wisdom saying refers to heterosexual, not homosexual, relationships as fitting for the lives of the faithful. Um, so, I have this thing here about um, seeing the trees but not the forest. Uh, the people who are trying to get people to zero in on these passages and then twist the passages, they're fooling some people, but they're really pointing to the trees and they're suppressing the truth about the whole forest, about what God's design is heterosexual marriage. We don't even need to talk about those passages because the whole design is heterosexual. Okay, so we're going to take these answers, these truths, and apply it to um, some counseling concepts. So first, we need prayer and relationship and to give uh, people an understanding of the abounding hope that's there for them. Um, Prayer is needed for heart level change. Only God can change at the heart. Um, There's a spiritual battle going on. There's many habitual patterns that are in place and lies that have been believed. And then the people who were their associations, uh, quote, friends that would want them kept in this lifestyle, um, they hate the idea the person's changing. Um, Relationship is needed. Uh, The case I'm going to talk about later, um, I got to know somebody for five months um, before there was change. Um, these people need healthy same-sex relationships. That's the problem. They, they got off on the wrong track, and they don't understand, they're, they're not good at healthy same-sex relationships. They're only, they're, they're, it's always, there's some other idolatrous component to that relationship. So if you're someone um, who can have a friendship with them and there's nothing sexual about it, that's what they need. And for most homosexuals, um, relationships were the center of their life. It's it's really relationship idolatry, and so they need they need relationship. Um, you need to help them at a personal cost. You need to give up your time. You need to take on their burden when they're angry with you. You need to take that. You need to study. You need to spend money if need, necessary. You need to pay a cost to minister to people. Uh, this is a very lonely time for a homosexual. He's been in this world with all these friends and activity and, and part of this culture. And then he's come out of that, and, the, and you're trying to minister to him as, as a representative of the church, but he, but he or she doesn't fit into the church either um, yet. So they're lonely. They don't have a group. And they've alienated their family, and so they need friendship. And um, um, it's just it's very vital. And then the change process is hard. It's difficult. It, it will happen, and it does happen, and there's progressive freedom, but it's hard, and so they need, they need a friendship. <clears throat> um, they need to know that you're in it with them for the long run. They, know that they need to know you'll keep their confidences biblically, but you might have to explain that to them. Um, it's not like a, um, you know, some state law of what confidences are. You're, the confidence is going to be according to scripture, so you explain that to them. But if it's a minor, their parents have a right to know. But but you have to uh, approach that wisely so there's not more damage done in the way the parents react. Um, and, you, and this relationship idea, you need to be transparent. You have to share 
your, your own testimony and the changes that uh, the Lord has done in your life. Okay, finally in this part is give them hope. Give them hope from Scripture. Um, give them hope in many other ways. Um, but the first way to start is because this is sin, there's tremendous hope. You can turn from the sin, turn to the Lord, begin to live a life that's uh, more righteous, and um, there's hope there. If this is something, an unchangeable, innate thing, there's no hope. Um, they need to understand they're not a slave to genetics or past relationships. Um, if they think they're created this way, uh, it was, the, the Creator intended them to be this way, that's hopeless. You're, you're not going to change if the Creator intended you to be this way. And then they need to know that Scripture is very unambiguous about this whole topic and authoritative over their life. Um, they, they need to begin to see God as the God of hope, and He gives hope through the Scriptures. Um, you primarily point them to Christ, to another counselor, and God will provide them a way of escape. Okay, so the process of change. Um, first, to kind of introduce it, we want people to go from a worshiper of idols to a worshiper of God. And I hope you're seeing that a lot of this topic is no different than every other topic. It's no different than uh, other life-dominating sins. Um, God's after the same thing. He's after relationship. He's after holiness. Um, we all have the seeds of every sin. It, it's very, very similar. Um, so, heterosexuality is not the primary goal. If that's what they're after, um, they're, it's going to be uh, stunted growth. Holiness is God's goal. The lordship of Christ over their life, like the rest of us, is, is the, the idea. Um, the gospel is to be the context um, throughout the counseling, meaning you may have someone who's not a Christian, they need the gospel, they can't have the freedom that, that a Christian would uh, attain to. But the gospel continues to be the context of all the, all the counseling. The only way you can be humble humble, and repentant about your sin, but very confident about the future, is the gospel. Um, you, you can't, the only way to be humble and confident at the same time is putting things through the lens of the gospel. Um, it may be unclear if this person that you're ministering to is a true believer, but in time that will pan out. In Jude 22 and 23 it says, Have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So there's these three kind of categories of people, and in the beginning you may not know who you're dealing with. You're going to love them all, you're going to minister to them all, you're going to give them God's truth, you're going to be a friend. Okay, so there's a biblical structure to the change process. In James, and I'm sorry, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, with the goal that says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So for the believer, God has planned good works from eternity past for your life. And what we want to do is go through this four-part process to get the person equipped to carry out these good works. So what I've done in this topic is I've broken up the way we're going to talk about it in, um, in those four parts. Okay, so the teaching of the truth. 
basically it's going to be teaching them everything in part one of this, all the unbiblical answers, and teaching them everything that we've been talking about. Um, not, not mechanically, not systematically. It doesn't have to be all in the season you're counseling them, but what they need, interacting with them. Um, um, so this is a review of what we've already talked about. They, they need to be taught those things. Uh, it's good for them to understand um, what was occurring before they got converted as an unbeliever and then what should be occurring as a believer. Ideally, people would be, um, let's say, in a household. Um, they would be shown Christ and they would be discipled and that would be most of their life. But for most people, um, many people, um, that's not the case. They go through this uh, time over here where they're not being discipled, they're being provoked to go in the wrong direction. And then, but after conversion, they start being discipled to go in the right direction. They start hearing truth and get turning direction. So over here, they get provoked. That causes them to start believing lies. They're responsible before God for actively suppressing the truth and believing the lie. But based on the lie saying this is what's best other than God, they start desiring same-sex relationships more than God based on the lie and then more lies more desires, it gets stronger and stronger. But they are responsible before God for actively suppressing the truth. And then there's circumstances in their life and people in their life that are provoking these lies. So they're, they're caught up over here. After conversion, they start hearing truth. and They're under the preaching and they have friends that are giving them truth. And, and um, they're reading the word and they're starting to get truth. And they're starting to follow their conscience correctly and, and agreeing with created design and scripture and so when they start believing about this God and what he's done for them and they start desiring God and they start desiring God above all else based on the truth that they're getting from the word of God, they keep believing more truth and more truth and desiring God more and more while people that are ahead of them in the faith are guiding them and discipling them and holding them accountable. Um, so it's good for them to know that to explain these provocations have happened and now here you are here. We're going to do this for you. Another good thing to teach, a key thing, I think, is to talk through with them. There's three options that explain the situation. A, they were born to be this way, the nature theory. B, this is externally caused, the nurture theory. Or C, it, there's an idolatrous desire from a polluted nature. And the biblical answer is C. This is coming from a polluted nature, manifesting in idolatrous desires, and following... Um, us, we follow our ungodly nature. Um, moving from teaching the truth to reproving sin, this is where we take the truth and we bring it to bear in their personal individual lives. Um, but before I get into it, I want to set up the heart of this. You know, it isn't something you, you, know, you just um, uncompassionately do. Balance is very important. You have to approach this that um, you have compassion that they really have been victimized in many cases, but you have to address the sin. Um, provocations that have happened to them have a very strong effect. Many of them have been deeply hurt by people who you think wouldn't hurt them, but they have been hurt by these people. Um, so when you take the truth of Scripture and you apply it to their life, you, you in no way have them misunderstand you that you're diminishing the mistreatment that's happened to them. There's often much mistreatment that's happened to them. 
And the Apostle Paul in Romans 2.4 said, the kindness of God leads you to repentance and by implication and faith. Um, so it's very important ministering to this group of people and mo- most people that, um, that that kindness is there, that understanding, um, that real compassion and friendship and relationship and knowing the person. But you can't leave them at kindness. It has to lead them to repentance. Um, so you don't have to go right to repentance, but you've got to get there. You've got to end up there. And it's generally through a genuine friendship. So when you begin to reprove, you're drawing out of them. You're exposing the lies they believe. Get them to understand what lies they've believed. You discuss what has provoked them. It can be parental things, sexual things, sibling or peer relations, verbal or physical abuse, heterosexual difficulties, or affirmation of homosexuality. So you see what provoked them, what lies did they believe based on that. So, the, so they're getting provoked away from God, they're believing, suppressing the truth of God, believing these lies, and they're starting to walk away from God. The most dominant provocations are usually parental. Um, it's unique for each person. It's, it's very different, but if you took a percentage, that's the most dominant. In Ephesians 6, 4, it's parents, it says fathers, but it implies parents are commanded, do not provoke your children. They're going to get angry. They're going to lose heart. They're going to um, sin in some way. So I have an example here of some parental provocation and then the lie that belie- was believed. And I'm using a male as the example. Um, so, for example, um, in the, the child's in a, in a family, and if there's marital discord, there's a poor role model of heterosexual marriage, the lie that can start being believed is that something other than traditional marriage is better. So there's, there's numerous things that can be happening that's leading them to believe what's wrong. The Bible says that mar- traditional marriage is very good. God calls it very good. It's best. But they're starting to believe something different. Um, another example um, is that a father can provoke a son with a lack of love. Let's say he spends a little time with the son... He's withdrawn, he's unexpressive, emotionally distant, unavailable. So it goes on and on, or he abandons the family, and the child starts sensing being unwanted, uncared for, and abandoned. So the lie he believes is that the greatest need is a male substitute for that father. He wants a loving, affectionate, or accepting relationship with a man. That's a lie. His greatest need is the Lord. That's not his greatest need. If, this, if it's greater than the Lord it's going to become an idol in his life, and it's going to end up in sin and harm. So, um, maybe uh, one more example. Um, If you have a a mother who has, she's really showing a lack of love for her son when she's wanting from the son, she's taking from the son instead of discipling the son. So, she can be um, emotionally Emotionally over-involved, the mother and son can be too close, and especially detrimental if she impairs a close relationship to a father or another male. And so what happens is the son starts thinking, feminine thinking and the female role is better. He starts viewing life through feminine eyes, through the mother's eyes, and um, those, those kinds of things. You can see how he's provoked, and because he has this sin, these sinful tendencies, he just starts going away from God, and 
um, starts creating a biblical worldview, an unbiblical worldview. Um, so there's many, many, many things, many lies believed, many combinations of these. Um, but one thing that can I want to say too is a child can wrongly perceive the circumstances in his life. So you could have a child raised as well as any of us has raised a child and either in his sinful mind exaggerate what's happened, misinterpret it. Um, sin affects the way we think. And so he can think he's being provoked, start believing lies when the, the parenting has been very good. <clears throat> okay, Cont- continuing with reproof of sin, once you understand the lies they believe, and these lies have become truth, instead of, um, um, you know, like they're believing the lie that I need a male most in my life, um, that that becomes their truth. It's not really even a lie anymore. It's just the truth. And so it, be, it starts to rule their life. It's what they need. It's, it's what drives them. It's what they desire. So you bring out what are these idols that, that have developed in their life. So based on the lies, what idols have, are, have been guiding them? What have been their inordinate desires? You know, you ask them, if you think back, what, what was your chief desire in all that was going on? And you can, you can get an idea how the provocation led to believing lies, led to um, idolatry. So here's some examples of uh, ruling idols. Um, primarily, it's relationship idolatry. I need a man or I need a woman. Um, I need relationship. That's primarily it for most people. And they're, they're, sorry, many are looking for um, affirmation from the same sex, admiration, acceptance, affection, that kind of thing. That's, the, that's ruling their life. That's what they need like air. Um, and then some other things, um, sexuality, it can be an idol. They get defined by their feelings and behavior. I feel this way, so I am. I behave this way, so I am. Rather than their identity being, um, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm in Christ. And... There's many, many, many things. Sexual pleasure can become a ruling thing. Um, the body can rule them. Even a body part can be something they have obsessed on. Friendship, intimacy could be it for some people. Um, the idol of independence from God in the Bible, from parents, from authority. If you talk to them and they look back and they reflect over their life, yeah, it was very important to me that I was not under authority or a particular kind of authority. Um, Avoiding hurt will guide their life. Being in control, happiness, physical appearance, drugs, alcohol, entertainment, escape, opposite sex identity, um, destruction of the opposite sex for some in some real extreme cases, um, homosexual activism, that, that, that life cause becomes idolatrous, and then, and then there's others. And there can be multiple things. Um, so what you want to do is identify the specific and unique idols to this person's life. And they'll start, as you're talking to them and drawing out, they'll, they'll start, wow, that, that was guiding me. That was ruling me. They'll start um, helping you to discover these things. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. So finally, with the reproof of the sin, Specific to this individual, you're getting them to understand the polluted nature, that they were suppressing truth, believing lies, uh, 
um, there was ruling idols in their life, and then they made sinful choices and were engaged in sinful behavior. So um, the third part in the process of change is correction to truth. And this means going from repenting of the sin to putting their faith in the right things. And the sense of this word in Scripture is these people are beat up, tired, weary. And so the sense is you help them up. You help them turn from what's been going on and get them turned in the right direction. And that's part of that is giving up time, being, taking on their burden, um, being a true friend. So repentance means that they see that the problem has been sin from in, within themselves. Repentance means this is sin against God primarily. That's the primary issue. David said, against you and you only I have sinned. He sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against the nation of Israel, but he understood real, true repentance. You take all those people out of it, all those things out of it, it's between you and God. You repent with knowledge as you've worked with them and they're understanding more and more, they know what to repent of. And then they need to repent of the responses to the provocation. They're mistreated, they've been sinned against, but they begin to sin in response. So, um, they need to repent of how they responded to the provocations. And then the most basic fruit of repentance is a s- sincere confession. These are all the sins, uh, not all, but a, a pretty th- uh, thorough list of the sins that's involved with homosexuality. Um, not honoring God, not being thankful for Him, suppressing the truth, blaming God, idolatry, um, Distorting the picture of of Christ and His Church. Um, if they're married, you know, not loving their spouse, depriving their spouse sexually, that kind of thing. Pornography, homosexual fornication, sodomy, things like this. Um, lying has gone on. They've caused harm to people, and you can see the list here: dishonoring parents, discontent, drunkenness for some, wasting time, wasting money, defensiveness. Judgmental, self-pity, anger, unforgiveness. Um, but what, one thing I want to point, and they need to, they need to go to God with these things, and they need to confess it to God, and He is faithful to cleanse them and forgive them of all this. But one thing I want to point out is, almost this whole list is not unique to homosexuality. It's unique to, you know, our sin, and it certainly almost falls exactly, except for a couple of these. Any life-dominating sin, you know, if you're if you're um, addicted to alcohol or you know whatever life-dominating sin you have, this is the list. Okay, um, in this idea of correcting them to the truth, turning them from sin to faith, um, I wanted to point out, which I went in more detail in part one, um, that the idea of personal responsibility and repentance. In psychotherapy, there's none. In integrationist therapy, it gets minimized. In biblical revisionism, there's none. And in the affirming church, there's none. But if someone comes for biblical counsel, um, they're going to learn that the co- they're going to learn that the cause is original sin, and their their same sex idolatry. Um, they're going to learn that there is provocation that's happened in their life that's been very significant and harmful things usually. They've been victimized. But because of this part here, the uh, original sin and seeing it as idolatry, the personal responsibility and repentance is total. 
behavior, desire, the way I was born, everything. It's all ungodly, and I take responsibility for it. Um, so the other part of correction of the truth is they turn to faith. God's love results in him and love for him foremost. They've loved other things, like any idol in any of our life. We love the idol. But when, the more we understand the gospel and what God has done for us and who he is and what he's, our relationship with him, that that love is so much greater than the love for the things in our past that we don't love those things anymore. Or it diminishes It diminishes over time. So as we believe the truth more and more about God, who he is, the gospel, we become worshipers of God. Or if you're a believer and we get more and more truth, we understand uh, the goodness, the character, the plan of God for us, we become more worshipful. Um, Part of the faith is their identity is no longer based on their feelings. They don't say, well, I feel this way, so this is who I am. Their identity is not based on I'm homosexual or I'm heterosexual. Their identity is in the gospel. I am first before God a sinner, and thanks be to Christ, I'm loved by God. That's their new identity. And some ministries focus on getting them to be heterosexual. I I want them to have a new identity. So the last part in the process of change is training righteousness. And this is the idea of where um, we're not dealing with the immediate so much. We're giving them positive training in how to live a disciplined, uh, godly life. So over time, you're going to teach you're going to teach about relationships, relationship with God and the church, relationship with the males and females, um, teach about reconciliation. There's been broken relationships and they need to know biblically how to address those. Um, gender roles, marriage parenting, a biblical view of love, the affirming church, um, shame, how to biblically view shame, health problems that they may have, how they've been victimized, how to see that through through the lens of Scripture. They'll have, they may have old lifestyle behaviors that you help them with. And then there may be the question of, do I, as someone who was a homosexual, now I'm a born-again Christian, do I minister to homosexuals? And when is the right time for me to do that? Those kind of questions. Temptation, how they deal with it. And then a big one is remaining desire. Um, you know, some things when you get born again go away like that. Other things, it's just this slow, slow, lifelong process. And it's no different if you have remaining homosexual desire. So um, I wanted to touch on that a little bit. I'm not going to touch on that all, the rest of that whole list. But people will say the desire is still there or they'll say my life is ruined with this desire. And that doesn't have to be. Um, first, the desire may or may not completely go away. You just have to accept that. And it's, um, it's similar to the rest of us. But there will be diminishing desire. You can count on that. What God has started, God will keep working. Um, the truth will set you free. The more you're getting into your soul, biblical truth, the more free. Um, you can, you, you're you're going you're gonna to get saved and you're going to learn things wrong. And you're not going to get free. You know, you have to keep going to the Word and checking and correcting, and you'll be set more free. The person in this situation, they should anticipate change. The Bible promises it. It shouldn't be, my life is ruined. It should be, I'm anticipating more and more freedom as time goes on. I, I, um, 
I think we all struggle with fear. I know I've struggled with fear. And as when I became a Christian, the, the fear got less. And then as I'm, as I'm growing, I'm having less and less fear. But I anticipate a year from now there's going to be a little less fear. And I want that. I'm hungry for that. And so the homosexual should, the, the ex-homosexual should say the same thing. I'm anticipating freedom. Um, most sinful desire in all of I'm so sorry. Most sinful desire in all of us changes progressively. So when they say, I'm, I'm born again by self, these desires of my life is ruined, that's not how it works. It's progressively over a lifetime for all of us. Um, and then they need to remember, God's love and favor is always present. Paul said, that's what's amazing about the gospel, is no matter what, I stand in grace. So the homosexual has these remaining desires, I stand in the grace of God. I, I feel free of the desire, God loves me. I have the desire, God loves me. I perform well in life, God loves me. I perform poorly, God loves me. And they need to remember that. Um, countless heterosexuals will, will remain celibate, so there will be some um, people who were homosexual and get converted, and they won't marry um, some of them, but they're not the only ones. Many people have that that um, to face in life. Um, 1 Corinthians 7.35 says, uh, Paul said, This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So for a believer, you can use the fact that you don't have to please a spouse so much, you can be working in for the Lord. Um, you can do a lot with a spouse, but there's unique things you can do without a spouse. But it's good to know you're not alone. Um, there's, there's many Christians walking this walk. Um, the final, uh, there will be final redemption of the inner person and the body. So if the desire doesn't go away, there will be a day when it will be gone. And if God doesn't completely heal them now, he will heal them in the life to come. It's a promise. So staying pure now will be all worth it. Because so, there's the temptation, well, I have the desire, it's not going away, I might as well just go with it. No, it will all be worth it um, when you're face-to-face with Christ. First um, John 3, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There's a website, um, settingcaptivesfree.com, and I just want to bring it to your attention. If someone you know needs help, they're struggling with this, and they haven't had any counsel, and they can't get to someone, who, a pastor, or someone who knows the Word of God to uh, minister to them, anywhere around the world, they can get to this site. And it's very... Um, it's very biblically sound. It's very compassionate. Um, it's an online 60-day study. Uh, the, the study is called uh, Door of Hope. Um, there's a lot of encouraging personal testimonies in there. When you're on the site and you're going through the Bible study and you're answering the question, there's a mentor reading your answers, and he will email you and answer your questions. He's praying for you the entire time that you're going through this process. Um, and then if you're counseling a person and they're doing this, you can get automatic emails of their answers. And so what I do, I read them, and then I see where they're not thinking biblically, and I'll, I'll copy that off. And when I go counsel them, I'll talk to them about what they've written. And it's all free of charge. Um, I, it's just it's an amazing ministry. Um, 
for people who can't get um, the direct help. Okay, we're, we're at 9 o'clock, so um, I want to get to David's testimony. Um, so I'll need to skip through this, unless everybody unanimously says do it, but I'll skip through this part and get to David's testimony to get you out, here, out of here on time. Um, oops. So th- this part was talking about um, if you have a friend or a minor child or adult child or a uh, parent leaving the home, you know, how do you biblically think about those things? So in conclusion, we're going to talk about a real person um, who came for counseling. Uh, David was born in a Christian home, Christian parents. Uh, throughout his teenage life and his entire adult life, he was involved in porn and drunkenness, sex with men and anger. Um, if you hear his story, the just severe trouble, severe pain, severe consequences in his life. But in his unique case, amazingly, no HIV. Um, his idolatry was uh, the sexuality um, kind of meaning I'm, I'm identified by how I feel, not how I behave. Um, same-sex pleasure, independence from God, the Bible, authority, parents, alcohol and drugs, and a trouble-free life. Um, he just expected life to be trouble-free, and he would do whatever he could do to escape, avoid trouble. And his identity was his sexuality, um, I'm attracted to these people, and this is what I do, and so that is who I am. But your identity shouldn't be how you feel or what you do. Um, David fed the desire. This is a quote from David. He said, My first memories of same-sex attraction start when I was about 12 years old. My fantasizing lust grew steadily worse the more I gave into it. Acting out with other males definitely made the problem grow worse. The more experiences I had with males, the more open I was to do more. I guess you could say I started losing my innocence in that I was less and less reserved in what I thought was okay. He also knew it was wrong when I talked to him and we talked back, you know, did you realize this was wrong? And uh, explain that to me. He said, I felt my attraction was wrong and I was ashamed of it. I definitely felt guilt. I knew it was wrong in an early age, but I liked how it felt. I convinced myself that it was okay as long as no one found out what I was doing. I felt like I would never get free because I didn't want to be free. Part of me always wanted to hang on to it. It was something I loved and hated. So, moving forward to uh, David in his mid-30s. He's a professing Christian. When he came into counseling, he had been baptized a year before. Um... Recently married to uh, Haley, who was uh, a born-again Christian. Um, They've been married a couple years, and in their marriage, he was mastered by pornography and drunkenness. Um, He lied. He was angry. There was other sins going on, and there was financial trouble that was mounting. And then the the big issue was he married Haley and didn't disclose to her that he had a homosexual past. Um, So... Haley initiated biblical counseling. He was in counseling for five months without progress. There was many, many sinful setbacks. He lost his job during counseling. And then during counseling, Haley caught him using homosexual porn. 
She knew he was on porn, but at this moment, she she realized it was homosexual porn. Um, so the homosexual idolatry became the key counseling issue. Before, it was pornography, drunkenness, providing for his family, those kinds of things. So this became the key issue. And Haley was uh, really fighting for her husband because this this was like a daily thing with the lying, the drunkenness, the anger, and all that. And uh, she was really fighting for him, but in her heart of hearts, she was very despaired about the marriage and, and the future. Um, so as I talked to David, he told me that in his mind, he logically deduces that either I was intended to be this way from birth or there was an external cause. He goes to the nature-nurture. This is what he believed. It was like a logical argument in his mind. And he told me, I don't recall any external causes. Um, I believe I was born to be this way. But he had never considered a third explanation. He suppressed the truth of a third explanation. And in all this time, no one had given him a third explanation. Um, So David was shown from Scripture the third explanation that what we've been talking about that there's an David. It's not just it's not just you were intended to be this way, or someone caused you to be this way. That there's a third uh, answer, and that in your polluted nature from a li- uh, original sin, these idolatrous desires began, and from there you made countless sinful choices following the desire. And David, um, he took responsibility for that for that sin. Um, there was a, this this answer. There was this truth that was put before him. And for the first time in David's life, he stopped suppressing that truth and he stopped justifying the sin. And he made the statement, uh, the thing that really turned things around for me was when it was explained to me that we were all born into sin and that sin was different for each of us. I always wondered how these desires could have been there. The only thing that can explain it is that we are born into sin. Um, So he makes a statement based on Romans 1 says you're believing a lie. And so the realization that he was believing a lie, he says, understanding I was believing a lie was extremely instrumental to my new freedom because it explained and answered questions I always had about me being born this way. I always thought that if those feelings were there from birth, then why was it so wrong? When I understood it was a lie in my mind, it made a lot of sense to me. And obviously this was the moment the Holy Spirit picked to do this. He could have been told this at another time and suppressed that truth. Um, so David's identity became, in, became from the gospel, not what he did with his, with his sexuality or how he felt. He said, I believe wholeheartedly that God has forgiven me of my sins and that he has an important plan for my life. The changes that have occurred since being born again have been great. And there's much spiritual fruit in David's life as evidence of his conversion. Um, He says, quote, I no longer want to get drunk. I used to accept and enjoy pornography and downplay the sin. Now I have fallen, but I'm miserable and repentant and want to be completely free. I've studied the Bible a lot more and other books by Christian authors. I have a great desire to learn more about the Bible and my calling in life. He goes on to say, I have a clear conscience. My anger is less often and less intense. It's been a huge stepping stone in my relationship with my wife. We're one person spiritually and becoming one person in other areas of life. I'm convinced we would have divorced if the Lord had not saved me. So this is a guy who thought he was saved 
and then now no and I, and I started noticing there's no joy and power in this person's life and what I notice about David now there's joy and power so David today he's a brother in the Lord his marriage is strong um, they actually with only three years of marriage they had their family and friends come together and they uh, redid their marriage vows she was in a white dress he was in a suit and they said the people that got married before is not the people that, that are here. And they renewed their marriage vows. Um, he's attending Bible college. Um, he has Christian parents that the relationship's been restored. Um, there are consequences. Finances is a huge consequence in their, in their life right now. There's other consequences. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not all rosy. But the amazing thing to me when you talk to Haley, and I watched her for five months fight for him and, and be in despair over the sin going on, is Haley's testimony is not so much about her husband, but it's about the growth that's happened in Haley through all this. Where she, for example, she was trying to control and be the Holy Spirit, and she, you know, she had her idols of herself. But her testimony is, God has used this to free me and to love God more. And David is, uh, he's a treasured friend of mine. Um, we meet for coffee periodically, and I love my time with David. He's, he's a neat person. He's got gifts and uh, character traits that far surpass mine, and I can learn from his example, and I love David. Um, Jesus said in Luke 15, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So that concludes the workshop. Um, you, you can't have that, that, that conversation I have with David and have that just work with everybody. You, know, it's, you use wisdom and how to apply all of this, and you'll hear what's needed. You'll hear what truths they need. Um, any, any, you know, I'll dismiss you because we're out over time, so anybody who needs to go, please feel free to go. But if anyone wants to stay with questions, um, I'll stay and we can chat. Copyright 2012, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.